Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, how does City Hall referee... How does City Hall referee demonstrations when both sides show up? The Conservatives want to investigate John McCallum and his comments regarding China and how the Liberal Party would be best for them. And do you own a cottage or perhaps rent one? Hydro bills could be going up more than $1,000 a year. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, a rally at City Hall on Saturday drew hundreds to stand up against hate in Hamilton. A small contingent of Yellow Vest members were on the other side of the sidewalk. What can the city do uh, about demonstrations in the forecourt? I mean, the whole idea behind uh, the whole redesign and having this space so we can all use it. I mean, it, 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 it's great to be a part of it uh, and, uh, and 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 get to be able to go down there and and hold functions and and have these sorts of uh, uh, public conversations. However, what has happened is it's it seems to have been taken over by uh, extremists. And uh, as soon as one group tries to protest, it appears the other ones are screaming and yelling and what have you. Uh, Is there any way to resolve this? What do you do in order to keep everybody happy in a scenario like this? Let's bring in former mayor of Hamilton, Larry DeAnne, and he is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. So, you know, here's, you know, the redesigned City Hall set up for this, set up so we can have public gatherings and neat little functions and such and such and, and, and even protests like this. But how do we, how do we, how do we allow protests that don't cross the line and, and end up hijacking the space the way we've seen for the last uh, several weeks? Well, hey, you know, that's the million-dollar question I think that everybody's trying to figure out right now because um, the moment you have uh, a public space in, uh, in what is the people's place, which is what City Hall is all about, um, and you try to have some, some rules around decorum and comportment and so on, um, you can never get it 100% right um, because the moment you seem to curtail People coming together and 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 protesting or voicing their messages or gathering for whatever it is that they are supporting. The moment you discourage that, you're treading on uh, you know the democratic right that people have of assembly. Uh, but the moment you allow it and without without trying to you know put words into people's mouths then you're accused of maybe fostering the kind of, uh, 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 you know, poor opinions or, or damaging opinions that some of these extremists have voiced over the last little while. So it's a balancing act, you know, and it's like walking a tightrope where you, you sort of try to get it right, but you can't get everybody happy. But I think, by and large, the city is doing the right thing. You can't forbid people from coming together to voice their opinions. Certainly not in a public space that's paid for by the taxpayer. And it really is the city's and the citizens' uh, hall, the city hall. Um, On the other hand, you cannot allow extremists to hijack the agenda 
and say hateful things. And some of the yellow vesters have been doing that. They've been voicing um, some very hateful, uh, homophobic, xenophobic kinds of uh, anti-immigrant statements. And and although they're distasteful, as long as they don't cross the line into into violence or or promoting violence or promoting uh, uh, violence against uh, identifiable groups, you gotta suck it up and and allow it and hope that shining the light of of public scrutiny makes them look as ridiculous as as they sound. Uh, On the other hand, if you get the other side, um, you know, the anarchists that seem to be supporting the LGBTQ uh, 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 protests, or not protesters, but the pride uh, exhibitors, they're not protesters at all. All they wanted to do was sort of celebrate one day a year uh, uh, being proud of who they are. Uh, but the moment you get anarchists mixed into that group and telling, you know, the police where to go and shouting obscenities at them and telling people to be, you know, have the strength to be violent, then that too needs to be shut down. And, that, and there's the fine line that the city has to walk. Um, you know, you brought up a valid point there, Larry, when, you know, when you said the fringe groups are, are, are seem to be jumping on other people's agendas and using that as a vehicle uh, for their hate. Is this is this a policing issue? Is this a security issue? Is this somebody is this a case of somebody standing there and saying, hey, you know what? You've just crossed the line there. You are about to be arrested. Well, whenever you've got a situation that can be volatile, um, then it is a security issue. And the police have a, a specific role. They do not have, they, they're nobody's personal security force. In other words, both sides, I'm sure, would like the police to defend their right to say and do what they're, say what they're saying and do what they're doing. Um, the police, on the other hand, their only mandate is public order. And they are there not to take sides, but they're to make sure that things do not escalate. And secondarily as well, they are there, quite frankly, to make sure that if somebody does cross that line into illegality, to arrest them and bring them before the courts. That is essentially what the, uh, uh, what the police have to do. And, and, and we sometimes make their job hard uh, on them. You know, the, the, the Pride event at, Ga- at uh, Gage Park, yes, I'm saying it correctly, um, uh, apparently, from what I read, um, the police were not invited to be there. They were not invited to, to, to integrate into that day, uh, but, they, uh, but they were there in the periphery uh, and so on. And so that's a whole agenda that we can talk about if, uh, uh, and, you know, maybe better guess than Mike can be articulate about why the pride group feels that it has to do that. But the, the logistical issue there is that if the police are on the fringe and there's only a few of them and they're not to be visible, then they cannot react as quickly if something goes wrong. They have to call for the backup. And, of course, that led to now the police being criticized for not uh, acting much more quickly during that day. But um, they are there uh, every Saturday, I understand, and by the way, nobody's talked about this, but they're there at a great cost to the city because it's the city that's paying the police. And I'm sure I, have, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure that they probably have to hire or at least bring in uh, extra people uh, to do that sort of work, which only increases the strain on the budget. 
which to me seems like counterproductive because we could be putting that money to better use if people just behave better. Uh, but that's that's the police's role, I think, is to keep the peace and deal with the lawbreakers when they see them, regardless of which side they're on. And they're not, you know, since there are two sides, they don't keep a tally. They don't say, well, we arrested two on this side. We better arrest two on the other side. They just arrest whoever they think is breaking the law. And, of course, it's the courts that make a decision on uh, on what happens to these folks once they're charged if they're charged. The sad part about all of this, Larry, is it's become less and less about pride in the LGBT community and more about extremist groups. In this case, uh, you know, far left anarchists and far right religious, whatever, uh, alt rights. Um, well, and, and, and it seems that it's these people that are hijacking the agenda. So, again, you know, this is I don't think this is about pride or, 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 or that community in that respect. I think it's people looking for something to pull so so they can create so they can create chaos so they can create anarchy. And, and, well, and we have to be able to somehow say, all right, you can have it this day, you can have it that day. But clearly, you two groups do not get along, and, and, and the, the way vast majority of the city is not putting up with this crap anymore, because it's an extremely small group of people. It, it, it seems to be, um, and and of course there are always agendas when when people. I mean that's the whole nature of protest is to get your agenda front and center so that people take notice and hope and you hope that you can convince people to your point of view. Um, and uh, and um, there's probably agendas all around. I mean anarchists have an agenda. Anarchists' agenda is to make sure that the world doesn't work well yeah. uh, because it feeds into their view that, uh, you know, they don't believe that it is working well, so it should work poorly for everybody. I mean, there's that agenda. And it's being played out on our stage. The sad part for me is that is that exactly it, it, it does away with um, and, and, and erodes um, what pride is all about, which is being proud of who you are. And that's why, you know, the Pride Days um, were started. And, and of course, we go back not too many years in history uh, when uh, people in the LGBTQ community were persecuted for who they were, were arrested for who they were, were brutalized for who they were. And we have come such a long way where, you know, uh, people who are straight, um, as well as uh, those who are in the LGBTQ community, participate proudly in in uh, in the pride pride days and this was disrupted by this group that came and had you know every intention to protest what this day was all about and so when we escalate things to conflict everybody talks about the conflict and they forget about the message that that uh, underlies the event that uh, that began this whole this whole thing and that to me is is very, very sad, quite frankly. How do other cities deal with this? Why is Hamilton having a problem with this? Well, uh, you know, um, so, uh, and, and, and it's said, of course, that there were hundreds of people at this event, um, and I don't know how many people attended the Gage Park event. Um, so I, I don't think the whole community is consumed uh, with this issue. I'm hoping that the whole community is very sympathetic uh, to the peaceful um, participants in, in any 
event having to do with being proud of who you are, whether it's for the LGBTQ community or, or quite frankly, the uh, the church uh, uh, parade that we had downtown Hamilton a couple of weeks ago celebrating, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and the Italian community. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm hoping that everybody in, in, in the city feels and should feel supportive of peaceful events and positive events such as that. And I'm hopeful as well that the Hamiltonians who didn't show up uh, to protest against the protesters um, uh, did it not because they were not sympathetic um, to to the cause, but because, you know, life needs to go on. So so I, I just want to put it into perspective is what I'm trying to do in a long-winded way. Apologize for that. That that the whole community is not seized with this. Uh, the press does report on it as the press should, but it's it's not it's not something that everybody is up in arms uh, about. And thankfully, because we need to get over this, we need to get back to some state of normalcy. We need to get back to a situation uh, which I think is is evolving positively for the LGBTQ community to say to them, "You belong." Uh, you are part of our community. Uh, we support you. Uh, we support uh, who you are, and and the, that fringe that wants to make you feel uh, badly and take you back to a previous time is not representative of the larger community. We need to get back to that. How do these groups uh, avoid someone like a Pride or 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 anyone in the LGBT uh, BT community? How how do they avoid their cause being hijacked by this? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? If somebody is intent on um, on disrupting, uh, they can do it, you know, pretty easily. I mean, you look at you look at whenever there's a political rally, and of course that that inspires emotions like nothing else. Uh, you can get one person uh, who uh, wants to uh, disrupt a, a town hall uh, by saying incendiary things. Uh, guess who the papers are going to cover, and guess who the TV and the radio. Mm-hmm. Is going to cover. They're not going to cover the you know ninety nine percent of the evening where answer questions were asked and answers were given. They're going to cover the most dramatic part, and that happens to be the one where things seem to go off the rails. And and uh, and uh, you know uh, these professional protesters know how to manipulate the media um, into uh, into uh, voicing their perspective uh, in in a very effective way. We as consumers, though, of the media, and, I, and I'm not blaming the media, by the way, for, yep. for focusing no, on that at all, but we as consumers should, you know, be intelligent enough to put things in perspective. Larry Diani has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about uh, demonstrations in the forecourt and how we can move forward with all of this. Larry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was talking about this in my commentary, and um, and you know, it's just it's surprising that um, that John McCallum, former ambassador to China, is constantly. Well, I shouldn't say that. He's done it a couple of times. He did it in regard to the Huawei CFO uh, that was detained in Vancouver uh, and, again, suggesting to China that uh, there's probably a way that she could get out of this and not be extradited to the United States. These are all discussions that uh, pundits like me may have, but officials of that stature certainly aren't supposed to in uh, the public realm. 
And uh, it's happened again in regard to uh, uh, the upcoming election and McCallum, uh, I guess, using his old contacts to, uh, to get the word out to, to Chinese officials that uh, they should go light on their punishment of Canada and that if they continue to punish Canada, it's not going to look good going into the next election for the Liberals uh, and uh, the Conservatives aren't as friendly towards the Chinese as... The Liberals are, so this could hurt them. Uh, And some have accused uh, John McCallum of election meddling by making these comments. Uh, The Conservatives are looking for uh, CSIS to investigate this. Christia Freeland, the uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, has called the comments highly inappropriate. To talk about all of this, let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So, Christia Freeland said this is highly inappropriate. Why is it, Christo? Well, you know, it's it's both from you know what was said, but also the optics of what was said. So, you know, this this suggestion that you know China should dictate its tariff policy or or any policy really based off you know what it will do to the pol- political reality of Canada is inappropriate. It's sort of suggesting that you know China should. For example, have very strict tariffs when there's a government they don't like and very light tariffs when there's a government they do like in order to preserve a, 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 a strong relationship with the existing government. And, you know, just the implication of that, um, you know, puts a kind of shadow over the reality. And again, that's where the, 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 the perception comes in, because even if, you know, uh, it's not as bad as people think, and even if there is a reality that from time to time, you know, foreign governments have a desire to see certain political parties in place. Canada and its allies, the United States, have done this throughout much of history. We've sure. used direct and indirect means to replace governments we didn't like and install governments we did like. We did that even in Western Europe after World War II, where, you know, foreign aid funding was tied to, you know, basically uh, preventing socialist governments, even democratically elected ones, from taking power. That's happened. But in the context of an election coming up, it creates this real sense that, you know, the, the, now the Chinese are going to be doing whatever they can to help Justin Trudeau win, which is going to inflame this sense that maybe their social media hacking, maybe, you know, uh, ad buys are, are being affected by the Chinese. You know, who knows what's happening, right? And I think that that's in a time where people are already on edge about the sanctity of the democratic process, yeah. given, you know, new technologies and the way they can affect things. Um, it, it doesn't help. What sort of impact do these comments have? Um, some are just writing them off as, um, you know, someone who has uh, uh, perhaps spent too much time in the post and, and is, you know, um, kind of an old school politician. Uh, what is he? Is he, a, is he just a rogue former politician or, or, or does he have interest in this game? I mean, I think from this perspective, my, my view at least is that you know, he, he's sort of speaking on his own terms. And maybe he feels that, you know, he, he's trying to help the Liberals, but I don't think this was a directive from the Liberal Party. It seems way too messy. I mean, McCallum was already sort of, you know, dressed down by the Liberals because he, he you know, sort of went on his own to kind of critique um, Canada's approach to, you know, the arresting of a, of a you know, major executive from a Chinese company. Um, and I think from this perspective, it's sort of McCallum speaking about that. And maybe he's, you know, at a personal level, still a, you know, a big L liberal partisan. But I don't know if this is a directive from the Liberal Party. Now, 
the effect of it, it could lead some people already predisposed to the idea that Justin Trudeau is trying to steal the election and plunge Canada into some kind of, you know, left wing anarchy or what have you. It could give those people further motivation to distrust them. But I think that because he's not really an operative for the government anymore, and because, as you noted, uh, Christia Freeland has kind of come out very quickly and denounced him, I don't know what the long-term effects will be on the politics of this election. Um, I don't know if this will sway a whole lot of voters. But the, the general discourse here about, you know, our ambassadors or former ambassadors or our politicians or former politicians effectively lobbying in a way you know, with a political language, not just lobbying to get tariffs down or to help particular companies that they may or may not be working for in a post-political life, but to say, hey, like, you know, approach a policy that keeps my government in power because we'll be good to you. And and that, that is troubling. Uh, surprised he has done this again, that he's, he's, I mean, he was obviously told the first time when he commented on the Huawei CFO extradition case, uh, and, and this seems to be just as inappropriate. Are you surprised he's done this again? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he was he was let he was let go for a reason, and 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 I think in part maybe it's because they felt that that this was going to be more of a pattern than an aberration. And for all we know, there may have been other examples about this that have been lower profile. Um, in a sense, I mean, it is surprising because it's extremely brazen. You know, it's extremely brazen. It's it's almost more brazen than the first example. It's one thing to kind of disagree with the specific government position. Is it a personal shot at is it a personal shot at the Prime Minister? I mean I don't know if it is and it's almost like a power play. I mean to a certain degree, but I mean I don't think it's a personal shot at the Prime Minister. I think if anything, in a hand fisted way, this was McCallum's attempt to help the Prime Minister. Because again his argument is like look, your tariff the, 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 the Chinese policies in Canada which may or may not be a retaliation to the whole Huawei situation, are having an adverse effect on the current government. And if those, if those adverse effects continue, uh, voters in certain parts of the country will vote for the other political party, will vote for the conservatives, and they will not be as friendly. And whether that's true or not, because both Canada and the United States over our long history have, you know, have both supported you know, free trade and, and, and things like that. They'd probably both be and both have limited concerns for the international nature of labor laws, for instance, and human rights laws. Um, so in a sense, I think they'd both be quite friendly to China. But I think McCallum is saying, look, the liberals are better for China than the conservatives. Please stop attacking Justin Trudeau, like, at least until the election's over. That was, I think, his intent. I don't think it's an attack on the prime minister. I think misguided as ineffective as it was, it was sort of an attack on Andrew Scheer and the conservatives. Um, what about the timing uh, with uh, this news coming out just before the weekend, and then over the weekend we realizing that yet another Canadian's been detained, which would lead one to believe that not only does the Prime Minister not want his advice, clearly China's not listening to him either. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but, you know, the specific timing of stories is always speculation. Yeah. There is one general thing, which is like when you have a story that comes out that you don't want to get a whole lot of play for whatever reason, usually parking it on a Friday afternoon is a good idea because, you know, journalists are, you know, people too. They, they, have, they, they have their families and their long weekends and their, and their holidays. And they want to go home. And, and, and often, the, you know, Saturday, Sundays kill a story's momentum unless it's a massive story like maybe the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Um, so, you know, often that's the case. So I, but I don't want to speculate that that was the intent here. But, you know, you're right in noting that I, I don't think McCallum's comments are necessarily that effective, because although he clearly has connections in China, 
he doesn't have that official capacity anymore. And I think that's a good thing for the Liberals because it gives them in this moment an ability to say, look, McCallum can say what he wants. We can acknowledge that what he said was inappropriate and troubling, but clearly it has no bearing on the policy of this government nor on the policy of the Chinese government. So it's really just some guy talking. You know, and, and, and there's nothing we can do to stop a man from saying things, you know, you know, that he has the right to say things, however misguided they are. And the, at the end of the day, is he stating the obvious, McCallum? I mean, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, I think I think in a sense, um, you know, it could be argued that the way a government approaches policies, especially in regards to a, a country where that, you know, that has a big economic connection to them. So, you know, the way United States and or China or other countries like that approach Canada economically could create good or bad economic conditions, and those good or bad economic conditions could make it easier or harder for the sitting government to hold power. But if it was that naked of a thing that China was manipulating this, I don't know if voters would, would, would be comfortable with saying China is attacking the Trudeau liberals, ergo I'm going to support what China's doing and vote for the conservatives. I think a lot of Canadians yeah. who would, would, would bristle at the fact that this was being done specifically to help the conservatives, including some conservative voters who I think would be rightfully concerned that their party was being helped by a, you know, a less than democratic country, the, you know, the biggest country in the world. And I don't think the conservatives would want to be tied to that because then they're, they're again, like with Trump and Russia, there's just be this per- pervasive narrative that, you know, Andrew Scheer is in the pocket of the Chinese government. Andrew Scheer is a puppet of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's why he won the election. So they don't want this either. I think both parties, Mm. in a sense, want this to go away, um, at least on the political side, although I think the conservatives are are, perhaps looking at this to ensure that there's nothing formal in the government connections. I think if that happens, then the conservatives do want it to be known. Uh, There hasn't. There hasn't been a replacement uh, made for McCallum, uh, ambassador to China, since uh, he was let go. Uh, do we need a new ambassador sooner rather than later? Would this have happened if there was one installed? You know, it, might, it probably still would have happened. If I'm, it, that's my that's my inkling. Now, would it have been um, easier to deal with, easier to, to 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 dismiss? It's basically not only is this the former ambassador, not the current ambassador, but you know, these aren't the words of the current ambassador. You know, I, I think it's a really tricky position. I think that a country as big and as important as China uh, to Canada's economic and, and global positioning probably does need an ambassador. But, of course, the biggest countries in the world, the, the ambassador picks are that, more, that much more important. And so you want to make the right pick. And perhaps the liberals are trying to think that they're waiting for that right person. And maybe they're trying to balance the fact that anybody they announce right now is sort of going to be thrown into a political firestorm. Maybe it's harder to get volunteers for this job than it would have been, say, a year and a half ago, two years ago, hmm. because that's the reality. Right now, you're looking at um, a, a, a position that's going to be immediately difficult. You're dealing with tariffs. You're dealing with detainment of Canadians. You're dealing with alleged, you know, uh, there's detainments of CEOs of, of big Chinese or CFOs of big Chinese corporations. Like, all of this is playing out. And there's an election coming up, and there's no guarantee that the, the you know if a sheer government forms that he wouldn't replace you immediately, and then you've gone through all of that for nothing. So it could be very difficult to mm. to get someone into that position right now. Um, conservatives want ceases to investigate. Uh, is that appropriate or overkill? I mean, 
it's that's that's a tricky one. I think in terms of asking CSIS to to examine this, I don't know if there's necessarily any harm. I don't know what's going to come up if 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 this is as it's been reported, which is McCallum in his capacity basically as a guy, as a person who used to be ambassador, said some things that are inappropriate. Then in that case, I would suggest that it's probably not something that not that CSIS shouldn't look into it, but that's not something that's going to be worthy of a of a full blown investigation and. You know, with charges and, and, and examinations in that sense. But, um, you know, it, it, is, it is troubling, and because it does concern, again, real or perceived, uh, an attempt to kind of jiggle the electoral outcome or the electoral map in 2019, I do think that it's, it's at least good people are looking into it. Because, again, the perception is important here, too. If all it takes is CSIS to take a quick look and say, eh, there's nothing really here, then that might be all that needs to happen, and then neither the conservative nor the liberal, um, neither the conservative nor the liberal result will be tainted by the perception that China either supported them or didn't support them. Uh, is this an issue that divides the party, or again, just a rogue, uh, a rogue ambassador, former ambassador? Is, is this something that's an issue, or? Um, are there people, people in, in secret meetings thinking, well, you know, uh, it wasn't a bad, you know, I'm glad I didn't say it, but it needed to be said. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I mean, I, I've seen from like people, like there's been other, you know, retired liberals who have suggested that what Canada should have done here is they shouldn't have arrested the CFO. Um, you know, I think it was Bill Manley, I believe he said, or, or John Manley said that if it was up to him, he likely would have given a kind of quote unquote tip. Uh, to the Chinese CFO that, you know, getting into Canada would have uh, led to your arrest. If she didn't come, she wouldn't have got arrested. And then, you know, and then things like that are kind of kind of feigning ignorance about the whole U.S. plan because yeah. there was the, you know, the call for U.S. extradition. But those are usually coming from former liberal politicians. I don't know if this new government has that position. And if they do, I haven't seen it because, you know, you would see it. I mean, you know, caucus and cabinet discipline, is a real thing. But as we saw with Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott and, and all of these things, during that whole affair, it was very clear that, that there, were, there were disagreements within the caucus and cabinet about how to handle S&C. And those disagreements, you couldn't hide them. I haven't seen that on this issue from the Liberals, at least as of yet. Uh, does this play out with Canadians? Do they care about this on a nice sunny July day? I mean, I don't think it's the biggest story. Again, if it, the, the, the sitting, if it was a sitting ambassador, I would suggest that it would be a much bigger deal. There would likely be calls for the person to be removed, and then the government would have to make a decision you know, to remove them and therefore legitimize the complaint or to keep the person in the job and risk further, further complications. You know, there's that whole you know, uh, seesaw of what does the government do. I don't know if this will have a major play out. Again, maybe the conservatives are hoping that if there is an investigation, a bombshell gets revealed and maybe there is more connections here to the existing government than, than, are, than, than are implied in the, in, the, in the journalism we've seen on this so far. But I can't see this being the biggest story. I think ca- Canadians are concerned about other things. Um, Canadians right now are you know, enjoying the summer. Uh, issues like the economy are bigger, are, are going to be big. Issues like healthcare are going to be big in the election. And then issues like the climate change are going to be kind of for the first time ever a, a first rate issue in a federal election. I think all of those things are going to matter a lot more. And if anything, you know, talks about, you know, foreign relations and stuff right now, you know, Donald Trump takes up much more of the space than China does. So I would think that 
you know, Trump's recent comments about telling congresswomen to go back to the country they came from yeah. is taking up much more mm. media space mm. right now than, than John McCallum's words to China. Many thought that those words insensitive because of the situation the two Michaels are in that are detained there. Does this help or hurt their cause? I mean, I don't want to speculate on, cause I don't, I don't want to speculate on, on individual people being detained either by Canada or by China. Um, you know, those are, those are personal and legal matters, and, and I'm not well-versed enough on them. But, you know, I, I, I can see why that makes a, a discussion like this more tense, because there's a sense that you want to be very careful in your messaging and your approach, because, you know, people's lives are on the line, right? And, and you know, whether it's, you know, their, their freedom or, or, their, or, or what have you are on the line, and you want to ensure that as a government you approach this. And China's probably thinking the same thing, frankly, because, again, this is affecting a very high-profile Chinese citizen as well. And I think that um, clear messaging is important. And McCallum saying something like this, even in the capacity of, as, as, just as a, as a, as a, as a Canadian citizen, as a person, uh, given his formal profile, maybe there is a fear that, you know, in a tense situation, this is like the straw that could really throw the whole card off. I, I can see that being a concern for people, although I don't know if that's actually what's happening here. And I don't know if this is going to actually affect affect anything you know, going forward. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We spent a great deal of time over uh, the last several years talking about Ontario's escalating electricity prices uh, heading into the last election. Uh, Former Premier Kathleen Wynne uh, uh, refinanced a lot of this, uh, pushing off uh, rate increases to uh, uh, later down the road. And and many complained that that was refinancing these debts on the back of the next generation Um, and and so on and so forth. And uh, I guess for us here, uh, rates have somewhat stabilized, although as the owner of a cottage up in the Kawarthas, um, which I've had for like 25 years now, um, you're, you're, the bills are just astronomical and continuing to go through the roof. So when uh, news came out that uh, cottagers may be facing a new hydro uh, hike, Hydro One is in the process of submitting a report to the OEB on its increase for seasonal customers. Could see uh, individual bills rise by $1,000 a year. Uh, and if um, you know anything about people that live in rural areas, uh, lots of them have been using electricity uh, to heat their homes through the 70s and, and 80s and such. And now it's got to the point where electricity has become so expensive, which seems odd to me. Why, if you're trying to get more and more people to use something, why would you keep increasing the price of it? Uh, but anyway, I digress. And, um, and you know, uh, electricity issues have, have obviously been uh, a sore spot for, for many Ontarians uh, over the last several years. Oddly enough, I'm, I'm on vacation up at my cottage two weeks ago. And all of a sudden, uh, we're, we're at different parts of uh, uh, my kids ran in with my wife to get something into town. And I get a phone call. Premier Kathleen wins in town. So apparently her and her partner were there for uh, the better part of the morning, going to the local grocery store and library and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And eventually I did see them when I was at the ATM. 
and, uh, and and Kathleen Wynn's partner came across the road, and I looked into the grocery store, and it's like, yes, there's the former premier leaning up against a car, and her partner came across right in front of me and was ahead of me in the ATM lineup. And I was commenting to my wife. She did not look happy. She came across the road stomping, like not, not happy, to which my wife said, well, maybe she just opened her cottage hydro bill. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people who live in rural areas, whether you have a cottage or not, up near where mine is, uh, they don't have a lot of positive feedback for the premier. Because, you know, a lot of them that have spent their uh, time uh, heating their homes with electricity have now had to switch to propane. Or you go up there in the winter, man, all you smell is wood-burning stoves. So I'm not sure that um, uh, uh, this is all working. Uh, anyway, uh, new information out that cottagers could see their bills rise by $1,000 or more. Uh, let's bring in Terry Reese, Executive Director, Federation of Ontario Cottagers Association, and on the line with us now. Terry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Uh, happy to be here. So how did we get here? How did we find out about this? Did we know this was coming, I guess? Well, Hydro One, as the major provider of electricity to rural Ontarians, is subject to uh, the Ontario Energy Board's the decisions. They're a regulated utility. And a couple of years ago now, they were uh, ordered by the Ontario Energy Board to, to transform their uh, customer ratings and to eliminate uh, the seasonal property class of customer. And that's, uh, I think, as you were referring to, many of the people that have places in the Corthas and beyond um, would be in the seasonal property class. 154,000 customers, in fact, across Ontario are, are affected. So why, what's the process? Why eliminate this? Well, uh, the OEB, uh, as part of their rate hearings, uh, determined that uh, they wanted to transform the rate classes at Ontario Hydro to something that was uh, strictly related to the density of the customers. So uh, their notion, and you'd have to ask them, but I think is they wanted to make sure they were attributing the cost of the grid to the people that cost the most money to serve. So rural Ontarians are expensive customers, and they want to adjust uh, adjust our rates accordingly. Uh, wow. Um, considering where we've been with the last government and the, the electricity plan and, and, and energy and, and refinancing and so on and so forth, is there any sort of government interaction or government comment on this? Uh, well, the uh, Energy Board's uh, independent of the government, but certainly it's our intention to continue talking to our, our uh, elected officials so that they appreciate the fact that uh, how this is going to impact people. And I'll just spell it out a little. If uh, you're one of the 154,000 seasonal Hydro One customers, you're going to be reclassified into one of two classes, either a medium density or R1 customer class or R2, which is the low density. 84,000 people, 84,000 families are going to be put into that low density class, those are the people who are going to be subject to a $1,000 a year increase, a $1,000 a year increase on top of what you're already paying. And they're already phasing in fixed delivery rates uh, across the next uh, three years. So it'll be more than that, in fact. So, you know, when you talk about fair, transparent, affordable rural living, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people have lived in these communities for generations, and this is going to be a really significant hit to people's household budgets. I, I just thought, you know, again, it, uh, being up there for 25 years, I just found it astounding how many people have converted, and this, these aren't cottagers, these are residents, have converted their homes away from electricity because of the cost. Well, it's true. I mean, we make these decisions, and these aren't taken lightly, right? We have to figure out how to uh, affordable living. A lot of people moved out of the city or have properties that are out of the city because they're affordable and maybe they've got uh, 
certainly lots of pensioners, people on limited uh, limited budgets. So it's a, it's always a game trying to manage your household budgets and do it in a way that's uh, you know you can still own and operate your your household and do it in a way that you can that you can still uh, afford it at the end of the month. So is this somehow related to the past government's energy plan, or as you stated, is this completely independent of any government rule? Uh, well, you know, successive governments, and that's of all stripes, have have made decisions for various reasons over the last 30 years, and they impact us in, in different and wild and wonderful ways. Uh, this one is not really uh, a, ma- this isn't a decision that can be hung on either the Wynn government or the current Ford government, uh, but it's something that certainly the government... As part of their mandate, you know, which was very clear about affordability for for Ontario's families, we think this is something that should be of great interest to them, and and we, we're looking forward to the opportunity to speak with them about about what they might propose to do to help these families that uh, are going to maybe this might be the straw. I mean, that's a thousand dollars a year that people just might not have in their back pocket. So, will this be a political issue? Do you think? Will this makes will this make some noise? Our, our association is, you know, that represents uh, 250,000 or so waterfront property owners across Ontario. We've got members in in virtually all of the 400 plus municipalities in Ontario. So you can be sure that someone, once they hear this news, uh, certainly is not discouraged from contacting their local member of par- uh, provincial parliament to talk to, about their concerns and what it's going to mean to their family. So we'll be talking to uh, our our contacts within the Ministry of Energy in particular and. Uh, we're going to encourage people to let their interests and concerns be known. Uh, and do we know what or where these, uh, what cottagers, these areas will be affected? You said seasonal. What if you have a 12-month property? What? How do they? How do they break this down? Right. So there's a number of customers that have been called seasonal over the decades, and that's again 154,000 customers. Uh, so there's customers uh, on in the same neighborhood that are called seasonal, and their neighbor might be called a ru- uh, rural customer. So right. there's there's going to be seasonal customers affected across the province in virtually every provincial riding, in every municipality that's got uh, waterfront. Uh, so there's going to be seasonal residents intermixed with full-time rural residents who, who I will say, if you're a seasonal resident and you're in a higher density class, you're going to see a modest decrease in your budget, which is going to be probably hardly... Uh, you're hardly going to be able to recognize it, given all the other changes and increases coming along. Right. But the people who are going to be dramatically and negatively affected are the ones that, you know, these are seasonal people that live in rem- more remote areas. 100, 154,000 total, 84,000 are going to go into the more expensive class. So what does what can a cottager do? Well, uh, as I've mentioned before, conservation does nothing for you. I used uh, 12 kilowatt hours in my recent quarterly bill. My bill was almost $200. So the cost yeah. of serving the customer is really where the expense lies. If you're on the grid, then you're paying for the for the privilege of being a customer. So, um, you know, I, we'll always encourage people to conserve, but the budget impacts are really, the, the vast majority of it is, is related to just being a customer and, uh, and being a rural customer is, is expensive. Terry, website we can go to to find out more? www.foca.on.ca, that's F-O-C-A dot O-N dot C-A, and we're happy to have people learn more about what we're doing and what's uh, what's happening with electricity rates. Terry Rees, Executive Director, Federation of Ontario Cottagers Association. Some may be seeing hydro bills uh, for their cottage properties go up $1,000 a year. Terry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.